0: Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, will you like Ska named three bands that aren't the Boss Tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network,
1: Consequence Podcast Network. Depending on who you ask, the city of Chicago in 1970 was either a hotbed of the kind of corruption and violence that was counter to the values of the United States of America, or a hub for advancements in art and in social acceptance for marginalized people. The frustration and outrage following the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy in 1968 were still very much present. The Democratic National Convention that same year was surrounded by protests related to the ongoing Vietnam War, and those protests were met with massive police brutality. By 1970, the mood of the city was still very raw. But glimmers of progress existed in Chicago's first gay liberation march that was held in the wake of the revolutionary events at the Stonewall Inn in New York. And the inaugural Earth Day in April of that year made it seem like, for a second there, then maybe we'd get the environment in order someday. And in the same park where the Chicago 7, the countercultural activist, charged by the federal government with conspiracy and other charges, were arrested following the Democratic National Convention in 1968, another riot would break out in 1970. The 68 riots were soundtracked by Detroit's The MC5, who'd come to Chicago to play for the hippies in the park. But the 1970s riots had no soundtrack because Sly and the family Stone never got to take the stage in Grant Park. Unlike previous riots in the city, this one isn't motivated by race or politics. It's honestly just a huge misunderstanding, with even bigger cultural consequences. In this episode... We'll look back at the events of that July day in Chicago and what led up to a riot that would change music history. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, this is The Opus, and I'm Jill Hopkins. Let's go to the park. (laughs) punctuality issues. Let's talk about them. They are not unique to Sly Stone. Lots of artists have struggled to align their inspiration with the increments that we commoners choose to measure the day. Miss Lauren Hill once told Questlove that, quote, I don't show up late to shows because I don't care. The challenge is aligning my energy with the time. You try using that at your job, and you let me know how it goes. In the 1990s, Axel Rose was that guy. In Montreal in 1992, when Guns N' Roses were on tour with Metallica, Axel was late after James Hetfield was burned by pyrotechnics, which resulted in the whole show being cut short. And that's legit. But one time... Axel was just late because he was watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so, you know, I guess whatever. Do you remember those old anti-drug commercials where the dad finds his son's drugs and the son says, I learned it by watching you. The dad in this analogy is definitely Sly in the Family Stone. And they did not set a good example for later artists here. I mean, you could learn a lot about showmanship from this group, And many certainly have, but you would not learn a lot about promptness, just saying. In the last episode of The Opus, I mentioned that by 1970, The Family Stone was missing a full third of the shows they'd scheduled. and had gotten kind of a reputation for it. And large rock and roll festival type shows were still relatively new. The world had already seen some of the ways they could go wrong from things like the poorly handled logistics of Woodstock to the tragic murder of an audience member at Altamont. Show attendants had plenty to be wary of, even before even getting to the thought about the tardiness of a headliner. And that brings us to Chicago on July 27th, 1970, when Sly and the family Stone were slotted to headline a show in the center of the city, at the Grant Park band Shell. After the previous few summers, the city could use a win in the culture department, and who better to lead a celebration than the family stone? I got to speak to Mark Kelly. He's a lovely man with a very unique perspective on the events of that day. He was in the crowd to see Sly and his band that day, and decades later would become the commissioner of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, where he was in charge of fostering the development of Chicago's arts and culture and helped put on shows in that very same park on that very same stage. It was a role he held for almost six years. I asked him to paint me a picture of the atmosphere of that day in 1970.
2: I was 19... I was a, a, a callow youth like most youth. Uh, I, I remember that day distinctly. It was really hot. Yeah. It was July and it was, you know, the kind of hot, humid day that you don't enjoy in Chicago. I was, uh, getting high and doing back flips, uh, into Lake Michigan over by the aquarium, waiting for the concert to start. And then, um, headed over there with a friend. And um, I'll tell you, it, it was, the minute I got there, you clearly, something very unusual.
1: Unusual for a concert in 1970 is unusual indeed. But it wasn't like a cool unusual, like freaky. Mark explains.
2: First of all, white and black youth of Chicago were never together Mm. and they were so here's a concert with sly with you know he's not he's not just for one genre right he's loved by by everyone and and i I don't know the crowd was roughly equally white and black which i never saw in you know racist crazy mean-spirited segregated chicago but but it, boy, it did not feel like Woodstock. It there was lots of tension in the air from the beginning before even anything had happened, because this was a crowd that Chicago never had concerts like this. Yeah. This was you know Daly called it a gift.
1: Daly, Richard J. Daly, the forty eighth mayor of Chicago, not to be confused with his son Richard M. Daly, the fifty fourth mayor of Chicago. You really can't leave Richard J. out of a conversation about the mood in Chicago in 1970. The counterculture was no fan of Daley's, and the feeling was definitely mutual. In addition to the way he handled the actions of protesters following the King and Kennedy assassinations and the protesters at the Democratic National Convention, two words, fire hoses. All eyes were on him following the horrific assassination of 21-year-old Fred Hampton, the deputy chairman of the National Black Panther Party and chair of the Illinois chapter, who was killed by federal agents and police officers in his own bed. So this gift of this Sly Stone show of the mayors, it rang hollow to a lot of Chicago's
2: youth. You know, black youth were not welcome downtown at all. You know, someone would say, well, are they welcome now? But back then, uh, you know, this this
1: is uh, Mayor Daly's shoot to kill. An already real tense vibe is not the foundation for a good time, to put things mildly. Adding to all of this was the location. The Grant Park Bandshell, or the Patrillo Bandshell as it came to be called, wasn't a place you'd go to see a good rock show
2: the old patrollo band shell was was dedicated to classical music and th- that was one of the few attempts by the city to bring more relevant and contemporary and popular music to downtown it mm-hmm. didn't happen um and and so here was this moment uh in this very tense city this very racially polarized city I would have loved to have known who booked it because, wow, the Flying Burrito Brothers and Sly and the
1: Family Stone is <laughs> just across the spectrum, right? This is a good place to talk about the opening acts. Fatwater took the stage first. And if you haven't heard of them, that's okay. They were a really short-lived psychedelic country rock band from Chicago that made sense at the time because the other opening band was the Flying Burrito Brothers and at this time the Flying Burrito Brothers were sharing members with the Birds and Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman and they were playing their own brand of jangly country rock music. And while those two bands surely knew how to put on a show, nobody was doing it like Sly and the Family Stone, which is why there was so much anticipation swirling around, mixed with the tension of a city already on the brink. I asked Mark, at what point did the evening start to feel like it was starting to go off the rails? It's around five o'clock. I think the show was starting to. 5, 5.30, one band had
2: played, but only played for a short while, and then and then chaos just ensued. There was uh, youth had sort of rushed the stage. People, you know, there was already, the rumor, it wasn't, a, people were sort of assuming Sly's not going to show up, right? He's infamous for, you know, not showing up.
1: And Sly was notorious for not showing up. And they had screwed up shows in Chicago before, but here's the thing. The band was actually on schedule that day. And they'd had one of their signature barn burner shows on deck. This is when the lack of communication between the producers of the event, the band, and the crowd starts to take its toll. See, the audience didn't know they were supposed to be opening acts, they came to see a slideshow. Who were these people? Joseph Patel, producer of the Academy Award-nominated Summer of Soul, documented how a large-scale summer show can go off peacefully in the middle of a large city. But he knows that they could go a lot of different ways, especially in 1970, when things like crowd control hadn't been perfected yet, and there was no way, besides in real life, in real time, to communicate with the masses.
0: An extraordinary amount of planning, goes into large scale public events in the history of time, right? And I think back then in, in the late 60s, early 70s, I think people are doing this for the first time. And so there is a lot of making it up as you go along. It's a, it's a boom for like public rock festival or for music festivals. And so my I would imagine that people are really just making it up as they go, which is why you have things like Altamont happening in 69. And you have things like the the event that you're talking about in Chicago. And it doesn't surprise me that it happened for a lot of reasons. You know, one of which is, I think it, it, I think it takes a lot to organize a mass gathering like that. And especially set to
1: music. An organization doesn't start when the band takes the stage, managing the expectations of a crowd by making sure they know who they're coming to see is somewhere in the first few steps of concert promotion. And that part simply didn't happen. So when two bands took to the stage that weren't sly and the family stone, the crowd's confusion turned to disappointment, and that disappointment turned to anger. And that, as you know, never ends well.
0: You're wearing out your shoes
1: 50,000 confused, sweaty, angry young people turned on the poor Flying Burrito Brothers. Those that had been in the park drinking since that morning started hurling their empties at the stage. It was 6 p.m.
2: 50,000 people, little security that was evident. All of a sudden, youth are on the stage. Things are, are feeling really tense. And then a ripple bottles start flying in the air. I mean, literally. You know, this is a day when you could bring <laughs> your your bottles in, right? And yeah, you're, you're watching it. Bottles are coming down on people's heads, right? You know, it's sort of there's no cohesion to the crowd. The crowd is unsettled. The crowd sort of a uh, there's not a friendly vibe at all. In clumps of youth here, there, everywhere, black and white. And then from there, just all hell broke loose because the police then showed their hand and the threat of a, a black-white disturbance flipped into the crowd became cohesive like that. The enemy now was in front of us and then, you know, people just, the next couple of hours was just, the only, only time I've been part of a full-blown riot, yeah. uh, hundreds of shots the police. I mean, uh, a scene where the police in Hutchinson Field, there's the baseball fields that are just by the the old Petrillo, and police cars ended up in a circle, like behind the cars being pummeled with debris. It went on, and, and it, it was, you know, scores of police charging into the crowd and then retreating and crowd coalescing, going after them, retreating. And and remember, you know, Chicago was at the height of its police brutality.
1: The distrust between angry youth and the Chicago Police Department was a two-way street in this moment. Bullets went flying from both sides. The stage itself was taken over by cops and crowd, and eventually, all the gear the bands had been playing through was destroyed by the end of it all 162 people were injured including 126 police officers three young people were shot though it wasn't clear by whom cars were overturned and set ablaze and before its fury was exhausted the mob had rampaged through the loop breaking hundreds of windows and looting jewelry and department stores. Police arrested 160 people. And as for Sly and the Family Stone, a rep for them said at the time that they were told they were to start at 6.30. But the riot, ironically, caused a traffic jam that prevented them from getting to the park on time. Sly Stone himself said he'd requested to take the stage to quell the violence once they'd arrived. But the crowd had disabled the sound system, and there was no way to reach them. The city of Chicago has two major newspapers, the Tribune and the Sun-Times. And on the morning after the riot at Grant Park, Banshell, the only other thing mentioned on either paper's front pages in big letters was news that Sears was to construct the tallest building in the world downtown: 110 stories. And Mayor Daley would cancel the city's remaining outdoor concert scheduled for the summer of 1970. Daily giveth and daily taketh away. But Chicago would eventually get it right. The same stage that Sly and the Family Stone were to play on over 50 years ago is still host to Blues and Jazz Fest every year. And Lollapalooza sticks a corporate sponsor on it every summer and his acts who are this close to the headline slot perform. Just last year, you could see Brittany Howard in post-animal play. In the exact spot, Graham Parsons got a bottle of Ripple thrown at him, and Sly Stone never got to see. But none of those artists were as good as the family Stone in their prime. Time has proven them to be a part of the uppermost echelon of writers and performers. And time has also proved there is a riot going on to be one of the most important albums in all of soul music. Is it the band's most well-known or best-selling album? No, it is not. But does it contain some of the most groundbreaking sounds to come out of the 70s and influence some of the greatest music to come after? Oh, hell yeah. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next time. Hey, hey! this is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you've done checking out the latest episode of the show, be sure to check out some of the other awesome programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including The What Podcast, a weekly show by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene or going there with dr mike it's an interview podcast series in which clinical psychologist and life coach dr mike friedman talks with musicians about the crossroads where music and mental health meet so head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast.
0: There's a lot of like, okay, will you like Ska named three bands that aren't the Boss Tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network,